If you open your Bibles to John chapter 2. While you're doing that, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Maybe just meditate on briefly. I wonder if uh, you ever think if God cares about what we are doing here. If it matters to Him, not only uh, what we do, but how we do it. Like, uh, if we just stayed at home, would it matter? Or maybe if what, when we come, it not only matters like just that we show up, but how we come. Or if it's just like if I'm participating, if I walk through the door, it's good, right? I mean, you just got to show up. And really even showing up, I mean, does it matter? Does God care? Well, I ask you, why'd you come today? How'd you come today? What was the quality of your heart coming today? Were you excited? Were you like, we mentioned the confession of sin so often, just showing up because you know it's the right thing to do? Why'd you come? Does God even care? I think He does, and I think that today's passage will tell us why. But before we read it, I want to give us a short little background about where we've come from. We've got to remember that John is writing a story. John has a very specific purpose. We read it the very first time we ever got into the book of John. The purpose of the book of John is that we would see who Jesus is, that we would believe who Jesus is, and we would live as a result of who Jesus is. So, we've been talking about Jesus. They've been one-trick pony sermons. And they probably will be till the day I die. Last week, we saw Jesus at a wedding. A wedding party. And he was making wine. See, the party ran out of wine. Wine was this symbol of covenantal blessing from God all the way through the Old Testament. It talked about one day there was going to be such peace and prosperity that they would have the land and the resources and the time to make wine in abundance. And that by the time we reached the times of Jesus, there had been hundreds of years of silence. And the people were still waiting on that promised Messiah. And the spiritual condition of the Jews was not very good. They were under the oppression of the Romans. As we see throughout the Gospels, they're really not obeying. And one symbol of that is these people running out of wine at a wedding. It was a horrible disgrace to run out of wine. And Jesus' mom, who's probably a widow at the time, comes to Jesus, her firstborn son, probably pretty reliable, being the savior of the world and all, says, hey, they ran out of wine. And Jesus responds in that very strange response, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And we wonder, what is going on? Why would he respond to his mom that way? And we saw that essentially what he was saying was, ma'am, what? there's no special relationship here. I am the Savior of the world. I am the Messiah. I'm on a mission. And then he says, my hour hasn't come. And we saw that 
He will turn the water to wine. He'll use Jewish purification vessels to do it. He'll fill them up to the brim. Hundreds of gallons of wine. Good tasting wine, according to the master of the feast. And nobody will know where it comes from except the disciples and the servants. But it's only the disciples who see his glory and believe. We go back to that statement, why did Jesus say my hour hasn't come? Well, the hour for Jesus in the book of John is speaking about his death. And Jesus will provide a sign about the covenantal blessings and he'll say, here it is. Using Jewish purification vessels, he'll repurpose them to show the blessings of God. And it will display his glory and the disciples will believe. Yet in order for the true messianic blessing to come from God, he must die. And so he says, my hour has not yet come. And we talk about how Jesus from the very, that was the first week of his ministry. That was the seventh day of his ministry. We talked about how Jesus, the whole way through the book of John, will live as a dead man walking. Knowing that essentially from the day he was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, he was walking towards the cross every day. So today, we have Jesus doing something else pretty extraordinary. Because we're left asking at the end of last week, what, okay, Jesus didn't do this in public, so when's he going to bust out on the scene? When's Jesus going to kind of, you know, stand up on a mountaintop and be like, here I am, right, perform some crazy sign and everybody's going to believe in him. We're, asked, we're left asking, we're left hanging, what could Jesus possibly do next? So in chapter 2, we'll read about it. Verse 12. It says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changer sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up, raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing... But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So what is going on? This doesn't really seem like the typical Jesus story. This isn't the Jesus we usually learn about in Sunday school. Kids don't come home with pictures of Jesus with a whip, right? Driving people out of the temple. Although I wish I could have colored pictures like that about Jesus. It would have made the New Testament make a lot more sense once I actually started reading it. So, 
what we need to understand is Passover. Really briefly, Passover was a yearly celebration that every good Jew celebrated. Because it was a big thing. Passover celebrated the day, the last judgment against Pharaoh and Egypt, when God came with this angel of death and passed over the people in Egypt and passed over God's people too. And God had told the Israelites, if you slaughter a lamb and put his blood on the doorpost, then the angel will pass over and not take your firstborn son. But if you do not, then your firstborn son will die. The angel passes and firstborn sons of the disobedient die. That's the last straw. And Pharaoh says, get out of here. And from that day forward, the people remembered that event as one of the most important events in the whole Bible. Actually, the Exodus event is one of the major themes of the Bible that will tie Genesis to the book of Revelation. This whole Exodus, walking out of the slavery. First to the Egyptians, and then to the Babylonians, and then of our sin. The Exodus is a huge event. And so this is the time when they're all celebrating it. There would be lots of people coming to the temple to sacrifice, to give offerings, to remember the time when God set his people go. Yet we read here that Jesus walks up into this temple and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. This is not Jesus meek and mild, right? Now we shouldn't picture like, you know, I would like to picture Jesus, right? Like ripped buff Jesus, right? Long flowing hair, maybe tied back, you know? Making like this gigantic whip and like frothing at the mouth and like, ah, you know, and just going crazy, you know, throwing people like superheroes do. That's the way we kind of like like to picture him, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that there was Roman guards all the way around the temple. These Roman guards hated Jews. They were, the Jews were slaves. They were dogs. They were scum. And the Romans liked more than anything, peace. Don't mess with the system. This will be one of the biggest calls on the part of the religious leaders of the Jews. Hey, listen, just shut up. Just kill this Jesus guy. He's making too much trouble. And the Romans are going to bust us for it. And if Jesus would have gone in there and been crazy Jesus, superhero Jesus, then the Roman guards would have descended. But that doesn't happen. No, no riot has started. Nobody goes running and screaming. You make a whip because I don't know if you've ever tried to move oxen, right? It's not very easy, right? So he's driving them out. It's forceful, but it's not some kind of psychotic event. But we're left asking, why did he do this? Let me tell you why he didn't do it. You ready for the uh, horrible sermon illustration, right? Here it comes. You see, what happened was... Jesus goes into the temple, and what he finds is money changers and people selling animals. And what would happen is, is that they were selling this special kind of money, and they were ripping everybody off. And also, the animals were unclean, and they would, everybody, like, it didn't matter how nice the animals were when you brought them in, the guys at the gate would go, unclean, you've got to buy my animal if you want to sacrifice it. And they'd take that animal, and they'd put it in this special little pen. You ever heard this one? And it goes, and, and it hides behind this thing, and then you have to buy this other animal. And then when that guy's gone, they bring the animal right back out, and they sell it to the next guy. And Jesus is judging bad business practices. Don't be a bad businessman. Don't be cheating people. God bless you. Have a nice day. That stuff will preach, right? Man, you walk out of here like, dang, man, i got to be a good employee and a good, you know. Yeah, that's right. It'll, it'll preach. That's not what he's doing. 
right? How do you know that? Well, because he tells us what he's doing. He's not judging bad business practices. Rather, in the words of one commentator who put it so nicely that I must quote him, the problem is that they should not be in the temple at all. The money changers, the people selling oxen, the people selling the doves. Instead of a solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there's bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. You see, in other words, the temple wasn't being used for the right reasons. See, it was fine that these people were selling animals. Most of these people would have come from miles and miles away. And to bring oxen for long distances would have just been a gigantic pain. So it makes sense that these people would be providing a service, right? come and you come with money instead of having to bring the oxen you buy the oxen right you bring the oxen in the oxen get slaughtered hallelujah you walk away okay so it's not that they're selling things the selling things part is fine it's that they're doing it inside the temple area they're you misusing the temple area and as an application here i would say this is one reason why we don't come here to be entertained right We can so easily get distracted with other things that go on here. These guys were misusing the very place of God. And we know that this is not holy, right? The walls aren't even straight, you know? I mean, this is not a perfect place. It is a useful place. And we love this place. And we take care of this place, right? But this place isn't in and of itself any more special than your bathroom. It's just not. So... What am I talking about? Again, this place was holy, but what they were doing here was not what it was intended for. And sadly, I think that most of us come, a lot of evangelical Christians, not us here, but Christians, especially pastors, are convinced that they just got to put on a good enough show, right? And then you'll come. Misusing God's place for God's appointed means. Why else did he go in there? What was Jesus doing? We understand that the temple wasn't being used for the right reasons. Well, maybe this is another reason. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, in the very last verse of that book, it reads like this. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day looking forward to a time when the the whole area would be cleansed, purified, holy. Malachi, the last book in the Bible, chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then comes hundreds of years of silence. One day it's going to happen. One day this whole thing, because in the Old Testament it wasn't all right. 
Read the Minor Prophets. All they're pretty much doing is going, what the heck is going on? You better turn around because God's going to jack with us if we don't. And then it happens. Then you get hundreds of years of silence. And everybody goes, what is going on? Then Jesus shows up. And Jesus goes into the temple and he starts cleansing the temple. And you would think everybody would be like, hey, we read about this. Remember? Back in Malachi. Great. Check it out. Zechariah wrote about this. Wow, it's happening. Mm, If only. The prophets are foretelling a day when God will come to his temple and purify it and the worship of his people. So I ask you again, does God care about how we worship? Does God care about what we're doing here? Absolutely. Another major problem was where this trade was taking place. You see, the Jews would not let this into their actual temple proper, the special part of the temple. But there was an area around the temple that was for Gentiles. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. It's this big area. And it was pretty cool because it gave the opportunity for people who were not Jews to come into the area close to the temple and worship and pray. Now, there's big signs that go into the temple proper. They still have copies of these signs. They found archaeological evidence. Right on it says, uh, if you're a Gentile, don't pass in here or you will die. Right? Pains of death. You don't do it, right? But there was these big courts and you could go and you could worship. Except for the problem that there was all these cows. Oxen and sheep and doves and all this junk there. So, who were the main ones getting left out? was the Gentiles. You see, I mean, it would have been distracting for anybody to come in there and be like, oh, geez, man, stinks in here. And you're buying your animal, but once you buy your animal, you pass through that. And you get to go inside. For the Gentile, he just gets to hang out with all the animals, right? Good luck praying, right? Well, we had like 14 chickens in here, right? Good luck. Good luck. So, one of the big problems here is that the Jews had turned the temple into a nationalistic stronghold. They had shoved out everybody else, right? They said, us, for, and no more. You just got to stay out. And Jesus is saying, no way. He's judging not just the practices. He's judging the whole system. It says here, zeal for your house will consume me, is what his disciples remembered was written. You see, we have seen, just in two brief verses, and we could spend a lot longer, I had a lot more passages, but didn't think it would be good to just overburden you with God causing, you know, just saying, I'm going to come cleanse the temple, I'm going to come cleanse you, I'm going to come cleanse everything. There's a lot of promises about that happening. And Jesus comes and he actually does it. Well, here the disciples remember, zeal for your house will consume me. See, it wasn't only God in the Old Testament who cared about our worship. It's also Jesus who comes and cares about how we are worshiping. I wonder, do you really want to follow Jesus? Right? Remember that song? I was going to look it up this morning, but I forgot to. 
But, you know, I remember that one little part of it, and step by step, you'll leave me, right? Anybody, anybody who's ever been to, you know, white middle class suburb youth groups sang this song like every week, and I will follow you all of my days, right? Oh, man, what a great song that was. Do we want to follow Jesus, though? Yeah, man, I want to get a whip and start, like, walking to churches and be like, you're messed up, and, like, start beating people. That'd be awesome. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, are you zealous for the worship of God? Are you zealous to worship God in the right way? Do you really want to follow Jesus? Or do you really just want Jesus on your own terms, right? It's like, I prefer to worship this way. Don't tell me we can't have clowns for communion. I like clowns. I personally hate clowns, by the way. And if any of you ever comes dressed up as a clown, there's going to be trouble, right? It's not going to be funny or pretty. I swear to you. Don't do it. But do we want to follow Jesus? Are we zealous, not only for ourselves, but for others to worship God in the right way? Again, not in some crazy judgmental spirit. Newsflash, you're not Jesus. Neither am I, right? So don't think that it's our role to necessarily like be Jesus to the world and walk around with whips, right? That would be hilarious skit, though, to see, like, you know, some satire version of that. But that's not what we do. Are we zealous in the same way he is zealous? If so, are we speaking about God and his Messiah, this Jesus, with our neighbors? Are we sharing the good news about Jesus? Right? Or is it just kind of like, well, you have your own God and I'll have my God. Ah, you just worship however you want and I'll just kind of do whatever I want. And we'll all kind of walk on that road to heaven. It'll be great. Are we zealous for the worship of God? Verse 18, you think, you think, you think the Jews would get it. And the Jews ask a rather awkward question. Jesus is in there busting everything up, right? Overturning the tables, like, hey, get out of here. Don't misuse my father's house, right? You think the Jews would, again, flash back to the Old Testament and be like, check it out, it's happening. Great, hallelujah, let's follow this guy. No, not really. What do they do? What sign do you show us for doing these things? Notice how religious these people are. Just how religion is eating these people up all the way to the inside. They don't ask why he's doing it. You think that'd be the first question, right? Like, hey, uh, slow down, dude. He just started his ministry. Remember, he's been at it about a week. Uh, whip, driving everything out. Why are you doing this? No, rather they are merely concerned with religious procedure. Um, excuse me, uh, what sign are you doing in order to, you know, do all of these things? What, what are you doing? They don't ask if it's justified. If, huh, this guy, this guy's cleansing the temple. I wonder why he would be doing such a thing. Just rather, are you going through the right channels? Is this really, you know, um, did you check everything off? You're not supposed to be doing this. This is going to get people in trouble. They also ask for a sign, as if this wasn't a sign, right? Driving over there, hey, uh, show us a sign. Second of all, like somehow magically a sign could just produce belief, right? Like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. Like Jesus could have just been like, well, you want to see a 50-foot elephant? Bam, 50-foot elephant. Check that out, right? I'm going to drive that out of the temple too. Woo! No. 
These people think that that's going to work, but it, it didn't work. He cleansed the temple and it's not working. Last week, he turned water into wine. The servants saw it and they didn't believe. The disciples saw the glory and believed and they won't believe to the cross. Do you believe? Or are you merely just kind of, hey, are we doing everything in the right order? Is everything kind of complying with my idea of religious system? Jesus answers, give us a sign. Jesus doesn't say, hey, guess what? Uh, I'm the Messiah, so I don't have to give you a sign. He actually will go ahead and give them a sign. And what a sign it is. Destroy this temple, he says. In three days, I'll raise it up. And the Jews go, wait, 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 wait. It's taken 46 years to build this thing. It's not even done yet. It won't be finished for like another 12 years. But they're saying, look, it's taken 46 years till now to get this thing all the way here. And you're, you're going to raise it up in three days? Huh. But they missed the point. Because John will add in here. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Last week we read about how Jesus took the Jewish purification vessels and repurposed them to point toward the blessings only Messiah could bring. And not merely self-works to be pure, right? That's what they were used for. It was like, oh, we're just going to use these. And Jesus is going, no, no, no. I'm going to use those, those purification things. Messianic blessing is going to flow through these things. They will be repurposed. Jesus is changing the entire system. But here Jesus is doing even something more bold, more brash. Jesus is, remember where Jesus is standing. He's just driven out everything out of the temple. He's now standing in the court of the Gentiles. The, the temple is somewhere around him. And in the midst of the temple, he goes, tear this sucker down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Rightfully, the Jews are like, whoa, wait. This thing is big. Uh, took us a long time to get this set up. And you're saying you're going to do it in three days. What Jesus claims is, this merely speaks of me. Everything you've ever wanted, right here, I'm it. I'm the ultimate fulfillment of everything you see. And they missed it. See, what was the temple? Think about it. What was the temple? Just a nice place to go for vacation, right? A place you had to go every once in a while, a place to just show up. Oh, my religious duty. No. Rather, the temple was God's manifest presence on earth. The temple was where God and man were reconciled through a bloody sacrifice. You ever heard anything like that? Man and God reconciled through a bloody sacrifice. Make no mistake, the temple was an awful, 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 awful place in every sense of the word. First of all, it was awful, and then it just must have stunk like nobody's business. Think about it. There's no Clorox bleach. There's no Tide. There's no Febreze. And you're slaughtering hundreds and thousands of animals every single day. And you're burning those animals. Anybody ever burned an animal? And I'm not talking like a roast in your oven. I'm talking the guts and everything. You ever burned it? It stinks. And there was a purpose for that. You had to walk in there and it wasn't like a pretty thing where it's like, you know, 
I, I hate supermarkets because you walk in there and like everything's packaged, right? And everybody's like, oh, that's how meat comes, right? Somebody had to kill that thing. The Jews had no mistake. They walked into the temple, right? Overwhelmed by this odor. Big, dark clouds of smoke going all over the place. And when you walked in that thing, you remembered one thing real clear. That is awful and it takes something gross to take away my sin. And it doesn't even do it perfectly because I'm just going to have to redo it again. It was also awful in that you're walking into a place where God gets right with man and man gets right with God through these sacrifices. Awful in the, whoa, fearful in every right sense of the word. Jesus stands in that very place and goes, I am this. Tear it down and I'll raise it up in three days. Notice that Jesus is asking to die. Jesus is egging them on. Now he'll go for another two and three years almost before they do it. But he's sitting there at the very beginning of his ministry going, bring it on. Bring it on. We read last week in Isaiah that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? In order that we might be reconciled to him. And he's standing there at the very beginning of his ministry going, bring it. Tear it down. We shake our heads at the Jews. How could they have missed it? These are smart people. He's standing in the very place. How could they have missed Jesus' speak? Well, number one, it's very common in John's gospel. People are constantly misunderstanding what Jesus is talk, talking about. They don't get it. I wonder if you get it. Do you get what it took for the sins of the people of God to be taken away, to be covered over in the Old Testament? More than that, do you understand what it cost God in Jesus to take away sins forever? Sadly enough, because they misidentified Jesus here, they will invite the destruction of the temple they are standing in. This is one of the complete paradoxes in the book of John. In chapter 11, right before Jesus is arrested, the leaders of the Jews are concerned about Jesus and say this about him. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, the temple, and our nation. (laughs) And they would go and crucify Jesus a few days later. And 40 years later, the Romans would come in and take away their place and take away their nation. The Jews to this day lament the fact that they do not have a temple. And they all miss the boat, sadly, in seeing that Jesus was the fulfillment of that temple. See, I want, I want to not only pick on those people who misidentified Jesus, but I would like to tell you, If you get Jesus wrong, if you do not see who Jesus is, you will be destroyed. Do you believe that? Christian, do you believe that those who don't believe that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the temple will be destroyed? And if you do, what does it do to you? Do you care? 
Or is it, well, I see it. I'm going. I'm on the glory train. I don't care. I would say if that is your response, you truly do not understand. Either the horrible sacrifice that God had to make on our behalf because we were so sinful, or the predicament of those who don't believe that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the temple. Well, the question comes up, yeah, but Jeremy, what if we do believe? Like, I, I know that's what happens if I don't believe, but Jeremy, I do believe. What happens to me? Is there any benefit to me if I do believe, or is it just if you don't believe, you're toast? So you better believe. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you would. Just to the right in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read this section. In light of what we just read, I hope this gets you as excited as it got me. Starting in verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's you by the way, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you catch it? Jeremy, what happens if I believe that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the temple? If God and man are reconciled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, Jesus being the temple, the sacrifice, the high priest, what if I believe that? Then you who are once far off have been brought near. You who once didn't see, now see. You who were once with no hope, now have hope. Here's the craziest part. You now become, according to the last verses, part of the very temple of God. See, when Jesus died, he didn't die just to save himself. Jesus died to redeem a people, and those people became the church. And that church stands on the apostles, like it says here, and Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, the most important piece of the whole structure, in whom the whole structure says here, being joined together, grows, present, into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together, current action, into what? The dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you are in Christ, that is true of you. You are not alone. You are not going to just have to struggle on all by yourself till you maybe make it to the end. 
But no, Christ has died, and in his death he has formed a people, and that people now grows and becomes a spiritual temple, a very dwelling place for the person and work of God through his spirit because of his son. That is us. And we are just but a mere local manifestation of that. And our job is to do the same as Jesus, be zealous about the worship of God, desire to worship God in truth and spirit, and desire us to see other people come and do the same thing. That's it. That's your whole job. That's my whole job. Just merely pointing back to Jesus saying, there's the temple. And when he died, he made us right, and now we're the temple, and the spirit lives in us, and we grow together. So come grow with us. I urge you to believe this morning. Believe that Jesus is the temple. Like the disciples, I pray you'd believe the scriptures and the words of Jesus. Don't be like these people at the end in verse 23, who believed because they saw some signs. See, Jesus did not believe in them. He did not entrust himself to them. Their faith was a superficial faith. See, Jesus doesn't believe in them because he could see their hearts. He knows all men. God, the unseen God who sees all. And he didn't only see their hearts, he sees your heart. And he sees my heart. I wonder what he sees. But we must understand that this God that we are talking about, this Jesus who went and cleansed the temple, this Jesus who now sees our hearts, right? That this is a gracious and loving God because he has brought us here together today to hear it. You don't have to hear it. You are guilty. Done. Yet God has decided to bring you here today. To hear that Jesus does this. To hear that Jesus sees into your heart. To hear that Jesus is zealous for pure worship in order that we might repent of our sin. Stop playing games and serve Him. Does God care about what we do here? He cares so much that He sent His own Son to purify the temple and become the temple, the place where God and man meet and are reconciled through a bloody sacrifice. We who are in Christ are now the body and part of God's temple. We have been brought near to God because of the work of Jesus, our sacrifice. May God make us a people who understand what he has done for us and live zealous lives of righteousness as a result. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your son is the temple. That we no longer have to bring sacrifices all the time to try and cover our sin and make things right with you but rather we must come with empty hands of faith and trust that you have provided what we could never provide perfect sacrifice in the person and work of Jesus the very place where you and we are brought together again God, I pray we would see it, that we would believe it, 
and that we would live lives that are transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and sing this morning?